Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand, and we would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So this week is our second week in our series on the Gospel of John. John, the fourth of four Gospels written about Jesus, the last of the four, probably written between 80 and 85 AD by John himself, the most philosophical of the four. And my favorite verse of the entire Bible is in the first chapter, the first verse. We talked about it last week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we noted how from the very beginning, John explodes patriarchal understandings of the new age of Christianity by saying in the beginning was the logos, because that particular meaning of the word logos meant the feminine creative energy of God. In the beginning was the feminine creative energy of God, and it was with God, and it was God. Quite a new message in a patriarchal period. And so now we move to chapter 2. And no, we are not going to go through all 21 chapters over the next 21 weeks. We're going to be in John for just a few weeks. But we are today going just one chapter away into the second chapter of the Gospel of John. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they are filled to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had, you know, too much to drink. And you've saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and all his disciples put their faith in him. So I told you last week that I've been watching the television series, The Chosen. 
I had avoided watching that television series for a couple of years because I knew it was done by fundamentalists and evangelicals. And so I had a lot of concerns that it might be hokey and may present the story of Jesus in a way that I could not abide by at all. Well, what I've discovered is through every single show that's been on so far, both full seasons and I'm caught up with this season, is that most of the time, I love this show. It is really well done. If you grew up with the stories of Jesus, it will reduce you to tears. How well they're told and how imaginatively they're presented. So I really do like the series. There are a few times, a few things with which I take issue. For instance, how demon possession is presented. It's presented as if it's some kind of a satanic magic that in fact, I think in reality, demon possession was most often just psychological illness. It was in fact what we in the old days with DSM-4 would have called di uh, access to diagnoses. Serious mental illness is more than likely what it was. But outside of a few things like that, I really find myself enjoying the series. But here's one thing that I've noticed is happening to me. Every time I see Jesus perform a miracle, I find it jarring because there are two forces at work within me and they do not get along with each other. <laughs> On one hand is my Christian upbringing in an evangelical world that told me that whatever is presented in the Bible is exactly literally true. And so I see the miracles and half of me thinks, that's it, that's how they happened, they're true, that's that. But the other half of me was, for most of my decades of existence thus far, a white guy raised in a very East Coast, intellectually oriented environment where miracles simply don't exist. If it cannot be measured, it does not exist. And so all the miracles of Jesus are considered to be not true at all. And the truth is, I probably have trouble with both of those perspectives on things. But let's start with that perspective that I got from my schooling, from my education, that said miracles do not exist. If it cannot be measured, it does not exist. If it cannot be replicated or duplicated in a scientific experiment, it simply does not exist. Or if it does, it does not matter. This is what I was taught. This is what a lot of us were taught. And in fact, it's only a 500-year-old idea. And it's an idea that comes from a bunch of early white scientists in Western Europe. Primarily starting around 1500 or so, it was Isaac Newton, Rene Descartes, Francis Bacon, others who thought that a reasonable God created a reasonable world that could be understood in a reasonable way. And they basically explained away miracles and all that was left was the rational left brain. All anybody cared about were the facts and facts that could be replicated, facts that could be duplicated, anything beyond that which could be factually, scientifically understood simply did not exist. Or to really put it quite simply again, if it cannot be measured, it does not exist. But this is only a 500-year-old notion. And I've got some problems with it. The first problem with it is that even science itself has moved on to a whole new realm, to a whole new plane ever since in the mid-20th century the discoveries of quantum physics came along. The first discovery was that there's no such thing as objective truth because whenever humans are involved, it will not be objective. 
They discovered that scientific experiments that were studying subatomic particles, the subatomic particles did different things according to whether the scientists were looking at them or not. <laughs> like bad children. So the scientists with his or her purposes were affecting the outcome. So there is no such thing as objective truth. Now, that said, it's important to note we can get very, very, very close to objective truth. But the concept of absolute certainty was brought into question. And then came the discoveries of quantum physics that rocked the scientific world. The first was that the building blocks of the universe are not composed of matter. The core elements of the building blocks of the universe could be described as a pattern of relationships between non-material entities. The building blocks, the most basic building blocks of the universe are not made of matter. They are a pattern of relationships between non-material entities. So the only ultimate reality according to quantum physics is in fact relationships. And if the only ultimate reality is relationships, is it really that much further to say that the greatest existence on earth would be love? Would it be much of a stretch to say love makes the world go round? Let's just think about a few of the leading scientists who named quantum physics. People like Werner Heisenberg, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Or people like John Polkinghorne, the physicist who not only named quantum physics, but also discovered chaos theory. Chaos theory is that scientific reality that a single butterfly flapping its wings in the Pacific Ocean can actually set in motion what turns out to be a hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean. The tiny changes in a system can bring about massive changes in a system. They call it chaos theory. Charles Towns made additional interesting discoveries in the early days of quantum physics. Same things with Ernest Walton, same things with the astrophysicist at Harvard and MIT, Owen Gingrich, and oh, by the way, what I did not mention is every one of the people I just mentioned is a Christian who believes in the resurrection of Jesus and believes in miracles. In fact, when John Polkinghorne was asked how he came up with the notion of chaos theory, he said, well, I was trying to figure out how God could answer a prayer without changing the laws of science. And that's what led me to the concept of chaos theory. So when science itself has some of its leading experts saying, oh yeah, I can believe in miracles. That's instructive to me. Second problem I have with this half of myself that says no such thing as miracles exists is that I was raised in fact and educated in fact in a very, very specific bubble of the Western world that most of the scientific world was in fact raised in. And we think we know it all. It's actually a bunch of white men living and dead who for the most part believe that our particular perspective, even though it's only 500 years old, is the perspective that truly matters. Did you know that the average human only uses 10% of his or her brain? We don't even know how to unlock the other 90%. So that'd be a little suspicious to me that I can decide that no such thing as miracles can exist just because it's the education I received also makes us worship too much Western medicine. It also makes us not open to all kinds of possibilities, which brings me to the third thing. If I decide to say there's no such thing as miracles, what do I do with wonder? What do I do with mystery? What do I do with mysticism? 
What do I do with all those things we simply cannot explain? You know, when my kids were growing up, I realized the education they were receiving in New York was very left brain, very scientific. And so all three of them, when they hit seven in second grade, I read to them all seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis series that is, in fact, about Jesus. Lots of magic, lots of mystery in it. I really could also have just done Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's work, which, by the way, again, two people who are Christians who believe in miracles. I told them those stories because I wanted my children to be capable of wonder. I wanted them to be capable of mystery. I wanted them to be capable of awe in the face of things none of us really understand. Yes, there are miracles. And no, we don't really understand them. Is every miracle in the Bible something that happened? I'm not sure I think that's true. But I do not question the existence of miracles or a lot of them that are mentioned in scripture. And why am I talking about this? Because the very first miracle that happens in the ministry of Jesus comes up in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus, his mother, the disciples have all been invited to a wedding. Weddings then were seven days long. Now let me tell you how I feel about weddings. A seven day long wedding to me would be pure, utter hell. I am not a fan of wedding receptions. I like the ceremonies themselves. I'm okay at a reception if I've done the ceremony, but for the most part, if I go to a wedding reception, I'm usually going with my ex-wife and we're usually kind of hiding in the back and we usually are leaving before they even cut the cake and we're trying to sneak out the door so no one knows we're gone because I don't really like weddings, which is odd because I'm an extrovert. But you know, all the dancing and all the drink, I don't, it's just not exactly my thing. You might feel the same way about weddings. Not so with all three of my children who love the idea of a seven day wedding. Anytime they go to a wedding, they're going on the party bus, they're coming home in the party bus because, well, they should be doing that. Jesus loved a party. Every time you look at any kind of a party that takes place in the New Testament, he is having a ball at the party. He loves a seven-day wedding. He, too, has arrived on the party bus. He is doing every dance that's taking place on the dance floor. He's doing the cha-cha slide. He's doing the locomotion. He's leading the conga line. He's the guy standing in the middle of everybody with everybody standing around clapping to the beat while the one guy in the middle is just kind of, you know, twisting around with his arms. That's Jesus in the middle of the wedding party. And then when he's totally, completely exhausted, he grabs yet one more glass of wine, heads out onto the back deck with his high school college buddies who were there, who then light up a great Honduras cigar just to enjoy the rest of the day. They're talking about old times when his mother comes out. Son, they're, they're out of wine. Mom, it's, you know, what... What do you want from me? I mean, it's not my time to do this stuff yet. Now, if Jesus rebukes me like that, I know what I'm going to do. What I do when anybody rebukes me like that, I just kind of go away with my tail between my legs. I don't know what to do. Not what she does. She is, in fact, a Jewish mother. <laughs> I grew up in a very heavily Jewish community in northern Ohio. Spent a lot of time in New York, heavily involved in the Jewish community. You know what Jewish mothers are like? My therapist in New York is a Jewish mother. You do not mess with a Jewish mother. 
She says, we're out of wine. Jesus says, not my problem, not mine to do. And what does she say? She turns away from him, ignores him, and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> so now his buddies are looking at him saying, ooh, dude, looks like you're going to be getting wine. Jesus goes to the servants, and he says, bring in six stone jars. These are not jars filled with water that you drink from. These are not jars filled with water that you cook with. These are ceremonial stone jars holding 20 to 30 gallons of water that are at the front door of a Jewish family's home, and they're there for three reasons. Reason number one, if you come to visit them in their home, you're going to wash your hands in that water because your hands are dirty. That's simple. Reason number two, the only people allowed in that home are other Jewish people who are in fact clean. So in fact, a woman who's menstruating, not allowed in the home. Anyone who's got any kind of an illness, not allowed in the home. Anybody who's not a Jew, not allowed in the home. If you're not really from the right social strata, you're not allowed in the home. But if you are, in fact, one of the cool kids, well, now you're allowed to come to that home and you're allowed to ceremonially wash your hands, which in that culture meant that you were ridding yourself of your sin. It was ceremonially cleansing yourself of your sin, which then meant that everybody who came into the house was without sin, without flaw, without blemish. So it was a ceremonial cleansing to take away your sins if, in fact, you were already one of the cool kids who was allowed in the house in the first place. And then it had a third purpose, probably its most important. The very existence of these stone jars always outside your house meant you were a home that wasn't welcome to everybody. This was a place that only welcomes its own kind. If those jars are out in front of the house, it means these are people who are exclusive. These are a people who live in the gated community. You can punch numbers all day long. Unless they allow you in, the gate's not going to open for you. This was the gatekeeping process. If the stone pots are there, you're one of the cool kids. And if you're not one of the cool kids, you're not allowed in. So when Jesus says, go get them, what he's saying is, take away the gates at the gated community. Tear down the buttons you have to push to get the gate to open. Get rid of it. It's gone. Anybody's allowed to come to this wedding. Not just the people who have been invited. Not just the people who already qualify. Not just the people who've cleansed themselves. Anybody is welcome. He's done that before he's done anything else. He's removed the gates that stop people from coming. And then he brings them back. Says, fill them with water to the top. They're like, um, the water's kind of dirty. Well, I don't care. Fill them with water to the top. And then he says, draw the water. And they draw water, and it's wine. And they taste it. And it's really, really good wine. I mean, the really good stuff. Had my kids and, and grandkids at the Gaylord this past weekend. Got a bottle of Pinot Noir that was like, Amazing and not that expensive. I'll tell you later if you want to know the brand. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm finishing up this sermon, drinking that wine, thinking, oh, yeah, like this. So they go to the banquet master who drinks it, goes straight to the bridegroom. 
has him drink it. And the guy's like, wait, what? And yeah, the banquet master's like, wait, you've held the best wine till last? What, what's going on here? And that right there is the miracle. Truth be told, I don't care if Jesus changed the water into wine or if he went out and bought the wine. I don't care because the miracle is that he took the stone pots away from their gatekeeping place. And then second, he turned what was in those pots into wine saying, isn't this the coolest thing on earth? Everybody is invited to the party with the good wine. That is the story of Jesus' first miracle. I mean, it's a miracle that you can take grapes and through the fermentation process, turn them into wine in the first place. But now Jesus has said, it's time for a party and we have enough wine for everyone. Everybody. And the people were amazed. Every single week since we started, every single week, usually at the beginning of the service, I or somebody else says these words, married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ or straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here for, all of us grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. Every week we say that. Every service we say it. Because this is a place with the best wine for everybody. This is a place we want to welcome every single human being. You don't have to be one of the cool kids. You don't have to cleanse yourself of your sins. You can come here and party with everybody else. You can do the cha-cha slide. You can do the locomotion. You can get in the conga line. You can do it all. You can dance in the middle with everybody clapping around you. This is a place for that. How well do we do it? Oh, yeah, often not real well. That's because we're made of humans. And humans tend to not get this right real often. So this, in fact, for us is more of an aspirational goal. But we also invite you to call us on it when we don't get there. Because this is why we've been around for five years. And this is why we will continue to be around. Because we believe the wine is for everyone. God... Thank you for good wine. And thank you for celebrations, for parties, and for letting us know that it's time to invite everyone to the party. For this we pray in the sweet, accepting, wedding, dancing name of Jesus. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.